Welcome to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. This is show number three. I'm your host, Brian. With me tonight is Ian. Hey, hello, everybody. And Mac. Hey, it's me. And Jen will be joining us later. So, what's going on, guys? Nothing exciting. Nothing exciting? Well, if there was nothing exciting, we wouldn't have anything to talk about. Well, I think uh, we got, we got exciting, some good, but interesting. I, we've got some good stuff to talk about. We're going to be talking about um we're going to be talking about Dungeons and Dragons, great geek stuff. Uh we've got some some cool space stuff that's going on here actually up here in Boulder that we can talk about. Uh we've got some medical news talking about the DSM, uh some military applications for science. And a few other uh, few other things. And we're also going to be talking about Pareidolia this evening. But we are going to get started talking about Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> so, Mac, you want to tell us a little bit about uh, about what what's going on here? Well, basically, um, the the recent the recent uh, slaying of several of her colleagues by Amy Bishop, one of the uh, one of the reporters for the Boston Herald, dragged up the good old battle flag that said Dungeons and Dragons was behind it because she was apparently a Dungeons and Dragons player. Okay, let's maybe we need to go back to the beginning here. So let, let's start with what is the controversy? Well, way back in the a lot of second line. It was in the both, 80s. Yeah, back in the yeah. 1980s, um, 1982, a lady by the name of Patricia Pulling, her son committed suicide and you know, rather than looking to a lot of the emotional problems that her son had been having, she turned her wrath on Dungeons and Dragons because her son was a player and decided that her son had killed himself because somebody cursed him during a game. Okay. So she started a group called Bothered About Dungeons and Dragons and basically kind of reinvented herself as a private investigator and an expert witness in crimes cases relating to role-playing games. Um, it is of note that as an expert witness, all of her cases lost. Okay. So. So it's completely unsubstantiated then. Yeah. Okay. But it's sensational. So people keep dragging it up from time to time. Yeah. I, I know I heard about a lot of this, and, and there was actually a lot of... Um, Actually, there's a really cool comic going around that one of my buddies got where it was uh, put up by some Christian church talking about the evils of um, of Dungeons and Dragons, and that uh, he he coveted the thing. He he he, he it was it was so funny. How, Probably uh, the chick comics that we've been actually reading through here. Oh, really? It might. Well, I don't know. It was it was directly you know it talked about no, Dungeons the, and Dragons. Chick did do one on D and D directly trying to. So the evils of D and D. Okay, it it may be so, one of those, and but it was put out by a church, right? Well, yeah, the churches mm. um, circulate these. Right, they're filled with a bunch of BS propaganda and some of the dumbest concepts ever seen. But the churches love sending them out because it, you know, it's supposed to scare people into believing. Okay, but here, I mean, there there are some things that that happen with this. Uh, I think one of the main reasons that their problem with Dungeons and Dragons is that you know they they did have they had demons and stuff like that in there, and that was a that was a problem for them. And we generally go and fight the demons. Well, okay. In D&D. One but, of the uh, one of the things they're bringing up over and over again is that the rule books contain detailed descriptions of rituals and magic spells and things that could actually summon up real life demons. Okay. Now I've been playing Dungeons and Dragons for over twenty years, and I have yet. To come across these rituals, apparently I'm not looking in the right part of the books. Well, no, I know. And the other part that is the problem is like the 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 spells in the books never give you what very good descriptions of what um, is needed to actually do the spells. And this is a problem when you're trying to figure out what you need to carry. <laughs> and everyone I know that's ever been involved in D and D has uh, actually been fairly stable and uh, beneficial member of society and stuff. So, you know, obviously, you know, these dozens and dozens of people are the exception to the rule. You know, know, like me, Mac, Brian, you know, we're exceptions to the rule. (laughs) Special pleading. Another another one of the recent things that's come up is um, Dungeons and Dragons was banned in a prison because somebody made the claim that this group of people who were playing together were forming a gang, so it was therefore related to gang-related activity. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, 
my god, a role playing group is a gang. Yep, they're gonna go around, they'll roll the dice at you. <laughs> you know, here's the thing, this goes back to you know, there there are studies. They've tried to do this similar I mean, I'm gonna make a uh I think this is this parallels it pretty well. The the same kinds of things they've said about video games and you know, the violent video games contributing to, you know, violent violent actual violent acts. And there have been studies done about this and you know the and the government has done several studies and in the end you know it comes back to that the um that there is no correlation i think that uh, wasn't it reagan who had the first study commissioned and then um and then george bush and i don't i don't know if it was george bush junior or senior he didn't uh he had the study redone to try you know and, and did it again and they came back with the exact same findings and then this is this parallels that and that they're trying to say that Dungeons and Dragons leads to violence and witchcraft and all of this. There's a, there's a lot of and Dragons parallels. doesn't lead to devil worship. Monopoly doesn't lead you to become excess excess businessman. <laughs> Clue doesn't make you a police detective. No. Uh, sorry no, I... doesn't make you go around in circles and <laughs> okay. off the board. All right. So now let's go back to, to your main article here. And so this is being drug up again is basically what's going on. Exactly. Um, somebody dragged up the fact that Amy Bishop, who killed several colleagues in a tenure dispute, was a Dungeons & Dragons player. And so they're intimating that because she's a Dungeons & Dragons – because she was a Dungeons & Dragons player, that this was the cause of her committing this violence. Okay. So let's guess the logical fallacy. I think I know what it is. <laughs> Go for it. It's a total non sequitur. They're, they're completely unrelated. Yep. Pretty much. Um, and there's actually another article that I pulled up that comments on the article, the original article. Um, let's see. Did Dungeons and Dragons motivate Dr. Amy Bishop's murders? And that was actually the original article here, but. Oh, um, actually, no. The second article is the one where they analyze and break apart the first article and talking about the fact that. This article is dragging up the psychopathic nerd stereotype, and it's uh, actually mocking people who are smart and into into escapism. Okay, but look at look at the related articles up here. One of them is report Amy Bishop's lawyer plans insanity defense. Okay, Dungeons and Dragons did not make her insane. There's there's no mechanism that that could possibly happen if she was already insane. It doesn't matter if she was playing Dungeons and Dragons or not. Mm -hmm. Right. And if somebody's already insane, whatever they've got in their life is going to be a contributing factor because they're already emotionally unstable. Yeah, so this is – but, I mean, this goes back to, you know, pornography, you know, increases sex crimes. Violent video games increase, you know, violent violence in society. Dungeons and Dragons, what, I mean, in encourages witchcraft and – I mean, it, it – it, it, it's all along those same kinds of arguments. And there's really no basis for it. Well, there isn't. And, and here's the thing is that they've been looked at. This stuff has been looked at. It's not like you know it, it, it's been let go and, and you know slipped through the cracks. People have actually looked at this kind of stuff. So. But yeah, I, I personally have known a couple of people that have had issues with D&D because of the propaganda. Yeah, so have I. And, you know, the other thing that this article says is, of course, you know, that it lumps all role-playing games into one. But, you know, quite frankly, for, for the purpose of, you know, of this discussion, that's fine. Actually, in the article about Amy Bishop's lawyer planning insanity defense, the only thing that they make any mention of in there is the battle for tenure. He's not going to bring this up in court. No. I mean, it, it would be ridiculous. Well, if you look at... Um the what's-her-face that started the whole thing back in 1982, it talked about her being an expert witness on all these cases going after gaming, and every single one of those cases, they lost. Yeah, You're talking about Patricia Pullman, right? Yeah. Every time she was brought up as a witness, the people lost their case using her. So, so not only are there government studies, but we've also got legal precedent. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, this, I mean, this is, it's a go-nowhere case if they try to do that. So I, I thought we had heard the end of this argument. 
Yeah, but it's 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 a it's a tired and tattered old battle flag. But still, there's somebody out there who'll try to pick it up and wave it if they think it's gonna if they think it's gonna spark something. Yeah, well, and it can get people right. riled. That's for sure. It's it's one of those ones, you know, that it, it can be a hot button for certain um, religious people. All right, let's move on to religious insanity. Ian, you want to talk to us about this? Okay, give me a moment. Computers being a bit of brat. Okay, so what we got is, okay, in Malaysia, apparently they've had a law on the books for like 24 years that prohibits Christians from using certain Muslim or or words that the Muslims have decided to kind of claim as their own. Uh, One of the number one words being Allah. Um, Apparently... (laughs) Uh, you know, for 24 years, if you were a Christian over there, you could not say Allah. You could not use it in your publications. You had to be careful. Well, so uh, at the end of last year, the high court overturned it and said, okay, yeah, you know, they can use it. And apparently this had a violent backlash where Muslims um, just acted out over it. And they, not only did they go after Christian stuff, they actually vandalized Muslim mosques as well. And it's one of those things where it's like, ah, uh, what are they overreacting about? And I, well, it, okay, you know, my feeling about this, you know, the, I don't think the article really covers what the actual issue is here. And that, and this is that, you know, the Christians and and the Muslims, they they, they don't want to share the same God. That this to them, these are, these are two different gods, and they should have two different names. And I know that that's not explicit in this article, but man, why else would you, if if they were the same God, if they if you if the Christians and Muslims really were praying to the same God. The name wouldn't be such a big deal, and of course, they're, they're a big part of it is going to be about which which of these two gods, Allah or God or Yahweh or whatever, is the supreme one. Right. Yeah, well, it's so and who's really right? Right. So the, the argument really comes down to you know to to more whose faith is you know more important to them. And can my God beat up your honor student? Right. <laughs> So I mean, to, I mean, I, I mean, it's a, it's a long article that goes into it pretty deep, but I, I think when it comes down to it, I mean, the, the, this is a religious rivalry, you know, between two religions that the the law has no business in, at least in this country. But you know, well, that's not true is, everywhere. Yeah, but it just. For, for such a, a small – the usage of it, it's, it's not even saying that the Christians are using Allah to represent their God, but they're talking, you know, they're using the word Allah is all it's saying if you read through it. it, it can the Christians call it Allah? Yeah. And apparently it was – according to this, um, there are Christians that – groups that do actually use Allah um, to refer to God. It's um, you know, I, obviously I don't know about all Christians around the world, but uh, according to this article, there are groups of Christians out there that do use that. Well, if you're and, if you're in a Muslim country and that is the dominant language, you know that's the word you're going to use. Right, and I, I referred to a couple other Muslim words, um, salat and kaba. Um, pr- salat, salat is prayer, right? And kaba, his translator brings it up as house, but I have a feeling. That because it's not being it's because it's something that the Muslims don't want used. I'm guessing it probably means more uh, like a temple, yeah, or a house right. of worship. And it, those words themselves were also ones that there were issues with. And it's like, why you know why are simple words like that you know why can you not are they not allowed to use the Muslim word for prayer? What is so exclusive about that that it bothers them? Because the Muslim prayer is more pure and more holy, mm. and therefore referring to it in the Christian sense is staining it. <laughs> I'm just guessing. It comes down to the silly, some of the silly, ridiculous little issues that get brought up when you're getting into the religious aspects of things. You know, they really do find small things to use as their excuse to to get violent. And that's the thing. Uh, something like this, you figure the, the, the lift of the band is not the real issue. There's other problems going on, but you lift the band. Hey, look, we have an excuse to act out now. We can now go and do the violence. We'll blame it on the band. We'll say, yeah, you guys lifted the band. You're allowing the Christians now to use our words, and that's pissed us off, and that's why we're reacting. But 
something like this, you figure they were just waiting to react. They needed, a, you know, a small excuse to do it. They wanted to do it. Yeah. All right. So what did I miss? Well, okay. So we're, we're talking back again discussing God versus Allah. Yes. Did you read this? I read that ages ago. You guys are late to catch the boat. So apparently this whole God versus Allah thing has been going on for a while. A long time. Like a couple thousand years or something. (laughs) (laughs) You know, uh, what was the name of the guy who did the bloodlines of the Holy Grail? Oh, yeah. Lawrence Gardner. Lawrence Gardner. That video of his that we watched where he was giving a talk about the bloodlines, he was talking about how in the Bible they used slang. And so when they translated it into modern English, things kind of got lost. And he says, you know... I don't remember what island nation it was, but he said every animal in the Bible translated for this particular language has become a pig. Right. Even God, Jesus, is known as the pig of God. That's right. <laughs> yeah. Because they had no connection to lambs and horses and other animals that they didn't see on a normal basis. So everything was a pig. So language gets moved around depending on your needs and I have no attachment to the word Allah as being strictly the god of the Muslim Islamic faith, but I can see why they would get mad. Well, okay, because we were talking about it, because my my take on it is that the the whole thing is just it's a religious feud between the Catholics and the Muslims, and they don't want to be represented as having the same god. So Allah can only be used by by the Muslims. One thing I'd like to get at in this article here, the article itself has a beautiful piece of alliteration, and i got to read that right now. All right. As part of a paragraph ending, talking about the the vandalism of the temples and the mosques with with the heads of pigs, the entire government has pledged its support and that of the police in order to solve this crime and bring the perpetrators of this hellacious hoghead hurling harassment to justice. <laughs> <laughs> Lovely. Yeah, that That's is beautiful. <clears throat> beautiful alliteration. Yeah. <laughs> All right. I, I think I think we're done here, aren't we? I mean, what, what more can we really say? I mean, they they this is a feud that I mean we certainly cannot solve here in the states. It's not an issue, you know. They, they're just gonna have to work it out, and you know, hopefully, God will will you know come down and tell them what He wants to be called. George, that's not his style. <laughs> Joanne. Ooh, Joanne, I kind of like that. <laughs> let's, let's go ahead and put God and Allah back in their respective cages and set everything right with the world again. Well, all right, all Nancy. <laughs> I like Grania better. It rolls Grania? off the tongue a little. <laughs> Grania. Uh-uh. Oh. All right, let's move on. Okay. All right, we're going to put you on the spot, Jen. Jen, tell us about the space conference in Boulder. This is good ah! stuff. <laughs> Um, it's a conference for people doing suborbital research, and my understanding is that it was—it's the first of its kind. It was being held in Boulder starting Thursday of this week, and um, so some of the talks were free. They're let's see, they're talking with former space shuttle commander Rick Searfoss. I hope I pronounced that correctly. And uh, space journalist Andrew, another name, Chaikin. I probably Chikin. butchered them both. <laughs> um, <laughs> what's interesting about this is that they're really trying to get their foot in the door with commercial space flight companies working with people who are doing research because the average person who just wants to take a suborbital space flight is going to go once, but people doing research are going to do it lots of times. And so really it's people doing research that are going to keep the space flight companies in the, uh, in the black. Right. So, well, and I, you know, NASA is going to be one of the, one of the people, you know, one of the companies using these people, if they can, you know, get us up. All right. And this goes great off of, you know, last few podcasts, we've talked about this and the fact that, um, you know, getting the um, big business involved is really the next step. It's where we need to go right now. Yeah, and that, that's basically what it seems like this is for is, you know, to get this the, to get this moving. I mean, a lot of the big players are there. Virgin Galactic, 
uh, Blue Origin. And Virgin Galactic's the only one that's currently taking reservations for space flights. Right. 200000 on that. Way down in price. Yeah, Yeah, that's the thing. Yeah, I'm still watching the paper for a coupon. (laughs) (laughs) Buy one, get one free. (laughs) The the 10 million off coupon? No, I guess this would only be 10,000 off. (laughs) You got to find out if they do group rates. Oh, yeah. We can do six people for a million, yeah. See, right. I I just need the virtual technology. One of you guys can go, and I'll just hook into your brain and experience. <laughs> Get a twofer. Exactly. All right. So, but this is good. This moves us along. Gets us where we need to go. And hopefully this will get more companies looking into it and thinking, oh, maybe there's um, money to be found there and get us, you know, regularly going up there and get more more and more Yep. All right. That can only help us. You know, if we want to get to Mars in our lifetime, this is the kind of thing that will get us started getting there. So. All right. Well, good. Mac, you want to tell us about the DSM? Sure. Um, basically, the DSM, the diagnosis, basically what they use for standard diagnoses for mental illness. Um, they've changed the DSM, the latest version of the DSM, Um stands for Diagnostic Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. But they've changed it to where they're putting together groups of illnesses into spectrums. And I'm both liking this step and I'm not liking it for a couple of different reasons. But, for instance, they're talking about, um, this came to my attention, talking about Asperger's Syndrome. Right. Which is no longer a uh, no longer a diagnosis under this. They would it, people with autism would be autistic. People with Asperger's syndrome are no longer Asperger's oh, sufferers. Right, as, yeah. They're now autism spectrum disorder sufferers. Right. And right. on the one hand, it's good because it means that people who have similar disorders with similar treatments can be treated similarly. But it also it seems to me that it kind of takes the patient out of it and treats the illness, not treats the patient. It takes the patient out of the equation as an individual and makes them makes them an illness. Okay, it but makes them something to be well, treated and not something well, wait. not somebody to be cared for. But as as far as the DSM is concerned, it's just a diagnostic manual. It's still the job of the doctor to treat the patient, no matter but what a, the diagnosis is. Diagnostic manual still affects how people think about the how people think about the illnesses. Well, and I think you that's know, the big in thing. Other words, if you stick everything under one umbrella, you stick people under the umbrella too. That's my thought. Okay, but Asperger's has really always been autism. Right. It's, it's just, a mild form of autism. Okay. Which has certain particular behaviors, usually characterized by. Being um, recluse, a recluse, highly intelligent, extremely focused on one piece of subject matter, to the point of, to the point of being super knowledgeable about that one type of subject matter. Um, classic person with Asperger's syndrome was a child prodigy, who had, he was brought up with uh, some very very advanced teaching methods from your from very young age by his parents and essentially was in college by about the time he was 12 or 13 years old and cracked under the pressure and spent some time in an institution went to when he came out he swore he couldn't do math anymore and he became super obsessed with subway transfers huh. <laughs> or streetcar transfers actually streetcar transfers okay and i can find this person for a future for a future podcast. But <laughs> I had read this person's story. I don't remember the person's name, but I'd read his story and it sounds like classic Asperger's syndrome. Okay, but do you think that classifying Asperger's instead as a a mild form of autism really changes the way that they're going to be treated? Is that the goal here? And let, unless, unless you know, and perhaps we'll be treated more effectively because we'll be calling it what it is. It's it's possible. My my thought though is that they're treating the illness and not the person. See, but this is this is Western medicine always gets accused of that. And the fact of the matter is is that it comes down to the doctor. The doctor is responsible for treating the patient no matter the diagnosis. 
No one else. Brian and I are on different sides <laughs> of this issue. I, I think we, I think we are, and that's okay. I, in fact, that's good. I, I just I, oh, I, this kind of brings to mind for me um, the article I read to you about um, black box warnings in antidepressant medications, and I don't remember which agency it was. Was it the FDA? The FDA puts warnings on certain things, and so on antidepressant medications, they put a warning that. It for younger persons taking these drugs that sometimes they wound up still killing themselves or still exhibiting depression and and so they wanted to make sure that people were checking up on the patients after they prescribed antidepressants basically and once they put this black box warning on it well a lot of doctors stopped prescribing antidepressants to teenagers and younger because they didn't want to be responsible for having prescribed it and then the child not getting better. Mm. And and it it's kind of sad but at, you know you want the doctors to you know be proactive work with their patients but you have to have a relationship with people to work closely with them and for things like psychiatric disorders or whatever the DSM will be calling them um you want to be seeing someone, a specialist, i.e., a psychiatrist. But most people, depending on their healthcare plans, are not seeing a psychiatrist regularly. They're seeing their general practitioner more often, and so is it comes it, yeah. down to whose jurisdiction is it to make the call. And if you know you could get in trouble for making the wrong call, you're going to back off and not make the call. So it, it's a very touchy subject trying to identify. Things that aren't physical in nature as much. You know, the, the other problem is, is that these kinds of disorders are, are much different than diagnosing strep. You <laughs> yeah, know? Exactly. I mean, because you, you come in, you know, for strep, there's a test, and they say, okay, you've got strep, we're going to give you some penicillin, you got some pain, take some, you know, take some painkiller, and, uh, you know, and, and you send them on their way. The, this is not that kind of a disease. Yeah. Or, so I, I this is a tough one, but I, I would hate to think that any sort of diagnostic manual is going to ch- really change the Not doctor. tomorrow, but long term as people are getting into the medical establishment, people who are being trained. It's the people five years down the line that are going to be more affected by it, I think. But what's the real change here? They're, they're, cla- they're classifying you know, these illnesses – disorders into groups as opposed to giving them each an individual name and to me it sounded like that the purpose in doing that was so that they could so that they could you know classify them better and treat them better that's the hope i don't know i i still think it comes down to the doctor to to do their job properly (laughs) anything like that there's a level of personalization anyways that needs to be there you know different people are going to react to different kind of um approaches to their conditions and so even grouping them together, if you have a good doctor, they'll know, oh, well, I can tell this is what's going to work best with dealing with this person, while someone else with the exact same thing might not react at all to it. So, you know, a lot of medicine is like that, you know, dealing with the, the differing people above the differing conditions. Yeah. I uh, found the name of that child prodigy, by the way. Okay. That was William James Sidis. Went to enrolled in Harvard College at the age of eleven. I, I guess what I, I want to know is how you think he his treatment would have differed had he been diagnosed as autistic as opposed to Asperger's with this new DSM. I just I, I think I just object on many many levels to putting people in boxes. Okay, so. but the, the, I prefer a cocoon more egg shaped personally. <laughs> Here's here what it seemed like to me is that there's they were already putting people in boxes, but now they're just putting people into bigger boxes or smaller ones. Well, in some cases, perhaps it, it doesn't seem to me that that it changed that that what they're doing here changes it. It just changes the the labeling mechanism. Yeah, but people react very oddly to use of language, as we mentioned earlier with uh, Allah versus God. So if you say Asperger's, 
people are going to say, oh, they're high functioning. They can get out in society. They can do things. Whereas you say autistic, you think of the kid holding his arms and rocking in the corner. Well, okay. That's okay. Uh, And so they don't want to have people perceive them differently. I understand that. And those, those arguments make sense to me. But those are societal issues. My doctor shouldn't see it that way. Right. Well, it's like Hayden, you know, my youngest son, he just got recently diagnosed with borderline um, OCD. Uh, you tell people that, they're going to picture Monk from the show. Right. And, you know, he has stuff that's somewhat similar, but, you know, most of that stuff, you, you know, there's no sign of. And hopefully, you know, working with him now, he'll never get bad with it, but... You know, there is a level where if you tell someone, oh, yeah, you know, my son has OCD, they're going to start thinking, oh, my God, you know, he's touching everything. You can't communicate with him because he's, you know, out of it and everything else. But it's actually not that bad, you know. Right. You know, my thing is, and maybe this is just me being an idealist, I mean, I think that if the information is out there that, you know, I mean, if people really understand that autism is a spectrum disorder – and when they hear somebody has autism, their next question has to be, okay, how severe is it? You know, how exactly. do they function? And and all these people have to be judged as individuals. And I realize that that's difficult. And you know, of course, the bigger the box, that the, the the more difficult that is. Right. So basically, we should start a PR campaign. Right. I am autistic. I am autistic. Person in the corner rocking. Right. I'm autistic. Get your vaccinations. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think um, PR com- campaign kind of leads in nicely to the next article. Okay. Changing public perception about things. Um, the next article that we want to talk about is women in AIDS. Yep. And uh, so, see. The Mac AIDS Fund just did a survey. Um, I don't actually have anything to do with that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a different Mac. Uh, I believe it's the cosmetic company Mac. They they spell sell a specific brand of their lipstick, their makeup. Um, I think it's like lipsticks and lip glosses, and all the money from those sales go directly to their AIDS fund. So um, the Mac AIDS Fund conducted a survey, and from what they found, nearly 75% of American women do not know their HIV status and do not think they need to. That's a little scary. It is a little scary because it's such a simple thing. It's a blood test. It's not that big of a thing. And in all honesty, I wouldn't have thought that the number would be that high as far as women not knowing. Um, I've never been an overly sexually promiscuous person, but I've been tested for AIDS several times, uh, for HIV. Um, And three of those times were when I was pregnant. It's standard testing, at least through Kaiser, which is where I see my doctor, um, that when you're pregnant, they're testing you for anything that could be passed on to the kid. And they said, you know, you are welcome to trust your husband, but we're going to test you anyway. (laughs) And I said, that's fine. <laughs> and uh, so, I don't know. I Again, there's this, there's two Americas. <laughs> there's the smart people who are aware of things, and there are the idiots who have their head in the sand. <laughs> well, okay, but and these numbers are just for women. Could they be that much better for men, really? I don't know, and I didn't bother to look. I'm female. I don't care. <laughs> oh, well. I would say that they're probably worse for men. You know what? It would not surprise me. It's not that I don't care. It's that I'm in a long-term relationship, and right. oh. I, I've never had to ask a partner, have you been tested? Right. Right. And that's, you know, I think that's most of our cases. I know I've never bothered being tested, but I have faith in my wife that, you know, nothing's going on. So... <laughs> Well, and how many years have you been with the same partner? Right. Well, over a decade now, so. Yeah, exactly. Ryan and I are coming up on like 12 years now. Yeah. <laughs> so um, so after this survey they conducted, they're um, putting out a new ad campaign to drive up awareness of women's risk of getting AIDS, uh, HIV, sorry. And uh, they're looking to fund effective programs to help prevent HIV infection. So, uh, yeah, that's about it. You know, see, they, is it sorry. just? 
I was saying, is it just HIV that people should be tested for? Isn't there, a, you know, shouldn't they be tested for a series of STDs? Well, certainly. Um, HPV is the big one that you hear about because they've right. got a vaccine for it and they would like to get it, get girls having the HPV vaccine before they become sexually active because HPV is a sexually transmitted disease, which is, can also in some cases lead to cervical cancer. Cervical, cervical cancer, cancer, yeah. Yep. It's pretty serious. Yeah, and it's such an easy thing. Go get tested, make sure you're healthy, see your doctor on a regular basis. The things everybody should do. And that is our public service announcement for this episode. <laughs> there you go. There you go. All right. You heard it here first. British Defense unveils special goo to protect soldier. Uh, that's me, isn't it? Yeah, it's you. <laughs> that is you with the special goo. I got the special goo. <laughs> 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 I, um, I don't want the special goo. I want the robot hand that disarms bombs. Okay. <laughs> I was going to say, you too should be tested for special goo. <laughs> yes, dear. <laughs> All right. So this is talking about Britain's minister, Ministry of Defense and their unveiling of various scientific innovations that they want to harness for rapid use on the battlefield. Uh, and where was this from? Uh, oh, foxnews.com, <laughs> oddly enough. Um, but it was through the Times of London. So this is just general people taking science and using it so that we can fight each other better. All right. <laughs> well, actually, the, the, the innovations themselves are you know, pretty interesting and you, know, you you can see you know where science is taking us, even though in this case you know it's focusing on the military stuff. There's still some, um, you know, the, the, if you read about the goo, it's basically set up to respond to pressure and liquid polymer, yeah. and it sounds to me like it's acting a lot like cornstarch and water does. Which, as a preschool teacher, I play with a lot. <laughs> but also, make... it reminds me of a metal I heard about called nitanium, which becomes harder the cold, the har- harder the hotter it gets, and softer and more liquid the colder it gets. That's interesting. Yeah, it is. It's pretty rare, but, <laughs> but still, something like this. You know, there's other things that, that can be used for outside of just the military aspects. So that's the other thing you look at with some of this is, you know, there's some science that, yeah, it's military use right now, but, you know, there's other safety aspects and stuff, something like that could be used for. It could be used for body so, armor for police officers. Yeah. It could be used yeah. for body armor for firefighters. <laughs> well, also, um, you know, you can look at... Uh, could use could it, it be, in... Uh, you could use it in vehicles. Yeah, okay. that's the thing. Could it be used in vehicles to, um, for impact reasons? I have a huge problem with this article, though, because Rich Walters, age 39, is a self-confessed Dungeons & Dragons fan. Uh-oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just saw that in there myself. I'm like, wait a minute, what article are we reading now? <laughs> uh, you know, I feel extremely disappointed that I missed out on that part of the conversation. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think that we should all remember that 98% of people who are currently in jail eat bread. You know, oh. I was I was going to I was going to I had forgotten that, but wow. that's what I, I thought about I read, read it. that it was yeah. an email that went around all over the place when I first went to college. Well, my my boys aren't getting any more bread now. I don't want to see them go to jail. Wow, that's good to know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, all right. I I do love the uh I do love the the remotely operated robot hand though that basically mimics the movements of a human hand. Yes. That is extremely cool. And this article about the this article about the uh the polymer also. They're talking about this this hand that can be used to basically defuse a bomb from a safe distance. And it'll have the dexterity of a human hand. It will act in much the same way because it's basically being operated by a glove on a human hand. And once more, you know, th- there's so many other applications for that. Uh, and, you know, we've, we've all been talking about space flight and, and stuff. That That's going to be great in space exploration. You know, we want to go back to the moon and stuff. You know, technology like that is going to be perfect for that kind of stuff. So exactly, uh, there's so much more to it. I wonder how far also this, this that's operated off of 
the movements of the hand. I wonder how far this is actually from a a working prosthetic that's got working fingers. Sure. All right. Are we ready? Are we ready, ready. to move on to victories for a common sense? Our favorite part of the show. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I, I love this for our first one here. Yeah, this, this is, is any time you see. The, the clergy actually getting it right is great. Yeah. And um, I, the Iowa clergy, uh, I'm, I'm giving them props. They got it right. Apparently, they came together. They, uh, 150 clergy members from Iowa decided, hey, you know what? Let's support gay marriage. Let's together sign a letter, get it to um, our, our Congress people and say, listen, we understand the ideas of love between adults. We've decided, you know, it, go ahead and we'll support gay marriage. And it's like, wow. Yeah. That well, is just incredible to see. I, I found what – one of the things I found interesting about the article is that it, it was very specific in that we're not saying that if your church doesn't want to um, ordain – a marriage between a same-sex couple, that's not a problem. But the state should not be um, regulating that. That the state, sh- the, the state should say it's legal, and then the individual denominations can decide how they want to handle that. And, right. and so I was separation of church and state. Exactly, exactly. So, this, oh, yeah. so this. Is, I note that the uh, I note that people we've got in here, the people who are listed on this petition are from a, a fairly wide spectrum of faiths. Well, that's oh, what, yeah. It that's does seem thing. to look it, like it's that. an incredible step forward for this, to see something like this actually take place. We need more of it. I'd love to see something like this in every state in the country. It would just be, incre- you know, it, it would be the right direction, the right movement at the right time. And it's so great to see. Yeah, so it's okay if you want it, – it's okay for churches to say no, but it's not okay for the state to say no, that it's not okay. So I, I – I, I like it. And love between um, consenting adults, whether those two adults are the same sex, different sexes, or whatever, whatever particular type of type of uh, love they have within them. Love between consenting adults is a beautiful thing, no matter what. Our next victory for common sense is not quite so controversial. <laughs> Now I put this in here because I, I I when I saw this art when I saw this and I read it at first it's like it it's totally slanted towards homeopathy and so the person who brings up the question right which is more scientific conventional medicine or homeopathy and it says in conventional medicine new medicine sources are mostly chemical slash synthetic are constantly being created tested in test tubes sick. Sick persons, okay, or animals, and then has rats, and going in and out of the market every few years. Once they, uh, once the side effects become obvious, yeah, become obvious. The general public, okay, and so yeah. How how many conventional drugs of yesterday can be found on the chemist shelves today? They all had their day, and their alluring names have faded into oblivion because they are declared ineffective or dangerous, only to be replaced by newer drugs. Homeopathic medicines prepared for many natural substances, such as herbs and minerals, used in the times of Dr. S. Hahnemann, 200 years back, are used even today because of their efficacy. They have been tried and tested on healthy human beings. They are known, trusted, and reliable. That's the slant of the article. Right. That's the slant. And so the whole thing is – I mean it starts out with a total slant towards homeopathy. But I I love the responses, the first response – I forgot to take my homeopathic medicine, and I died of an overdose. <laughs> um, and then, and then, but the, this next one, this next post is excellent. A major component of science is that it changes over time. For something to remain static despite the changes in our knowledge base from genetics to chemistry makes it rather suspect. There's exactly. right, and there's no let's see, there is no scientific basis for the claims made by homeopathy, homeopathists, um, homeopaths. homeopaths. See, I should never read this. There are no scientific basis for claims made by homeopath. 
So, and he goes on to, you know, to point out, you know, that some issues with homeopathy. Um, we'll talk about the dilution, which we've dealt with. Right, we've dealt with the dilution. So basically, you know. Homeopathic cures don't change over time because they don't do anything. Right. <laughs> so, and the next, uh, the next post was good, too. It talks about how, you know, after all the scientific breakthroughs we've had, you know, medicine has changed while homeopathy hasn't. Right. It's, you know, it, it's not addressing all this new knowledge we have that kind of says, hey, there has to be more to it if you want to heal yourself. And this is, you know, and this is the same issue with um, you. We can take this back to creationism, too. What he's saying about how science changes over time, you know, creationists try to use this as a weakness against um, evolution because they're always changing it. And it's like, well, but I mean, look, look at you. Yours hasn't changed at all. In the face of all this evidence that we do know, your creationists haven't changed their, you know, their views based on DNA, which, you know, none of them would dispute exists. Well, science evolves. Religion just splinters. <laughs> so, yeah, so the so this was great because. The person who put it up there put it up with a, a clear slant, and the and every single post to this has been you know has been pro science. So, so there are sane minds out there who <laughs> they uh, well, and apparently they're on that particular blog. Yep. Now I've got to say that I do actually believe in certain herbs for treatments for certain things. Herbs and homeopathy are total. I mean, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And the person who wrote the original article identifies herbal medicine as being the same as homeopathy, and it's not. Right. Homeopathy is, as we defined it before, it's putting a little bit of something into water so that the water can remember it and make us well from that thing. Right. Like and, and and like here's like, mm-hmm. so yeah. But also within that, the um, herbs have been tested. You know, it's like okay, this is what they do, and they can actually improve them by saying this is the dosage that you need. Don't just start taking it randomly. You know, this is how much you need if you really want it to benefit you. If you just take little, no, that's not going to do anything. You need to take so much. So even within that, you know, what you're saying work has been proven works. It's been proven, and we know the science behind it. We know what it is that makes it work. We know what it is that you need to do to make it work. Right. Well, so penicillin it, started off as herbal medicine. Right. Mold, but yes, it was it was a penicillin started off as a natural substance. You know what? The, you know the, this whole issue of natural substances is, is is ridiculous too. Yeah. Because you know what? I'd like to invite you guys over some for some natural hemlock tea. And I'm I'm reminded of the immortal words of Socrates, who said, "I drank what." Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You guys want to talk about some pareidolia? Let's talk about pareidolia. I think that's a very pretty flower myself. Or am I thinking of gladioles? You might be. Probably. Yeah. Yes, our topic for the week. Yeah, so Wikipedia says pareidolia is a psychological phenomenon involving a vague and random stimulation of an image or sound being preceded as being perceived as significant so that's uh, um so then it goes on to give some common examples and actually the examples on the um on i i put two links in there the other one goes to the uh the uh, this goes to skeptic.com and this is the skeptics dictionary and in here there are some excellent examples of um of pareidolia and my i i i love the toast well, I'm sure everyone remembers a couple years back when we had the grilled cheese sandwich that they actually auctioned off at eBay. You know, the guy made oh. a fortune off it because the, the woman in his grilled cheese. Yeah, it was it was a well, woman. Well, there's a picture of it. Well, no, well, this one's no, not this, the same one. This, this one, is different. That, that's Obama in a grilled in toast, isn't it? Uh, I don't know. Is it's it? It's either Obama or Betty Grable. <laughs> It's definitely not Jesus. There's no face. No, no, yeah, it's not Jesus. No, no I, that, that was a grilled cheese sandwich. This just looks like a piece of toast. Yeah. Well, I, I see Obama. Do you see it? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, oh, pareidolia, it, 
is extremely common actually and our our brains particularly are geared to see faces i mean you can look at the dots on the ceiling and and at some point you're going to see faces up there you're going to start to see shapes when you're looking at clouds and and you're and you're looking at the different clouds and looking what they look like this is this is you know pareidolia um and it's basically you know what our ability to see shapes, and I didn't realize actually until you know, to looking at this stuff that pareidolia also included um, hearing stuff when you think you hear stuff, and this is this can account for most of what we what people think about when they you know when they talk about they saw something or they heard something, and particularly you know when we're talking about ghosts and stuff like that, is the phenomenon that that they're actually experiencing experiencing is pareidolia as opposed to you know actually hearing something they might hear a you know a leak or a creak and you know it's the way that they interpret that and it's kind of um attributing more information to what they heard than than what is actually needed right one of the um one of the most famous um um, cases yeah cases of pareidolia is the face on mars um, you know, there was some uh, some early photos of Mars taken by a uh, by a probe that we sent up there, and one of the regions looks like it had um, it had a face on there, like there was a face on Mars. Now, most of that, you know, they, they were quickly able to determine looking at the actual data of that picture, you know, what it was and what they were seeing, and better pictures of that area have shown that it is just a rocky region. Um, the same guy who talks about the um, face on Mars, he always t- he also talks about there being a, you know a, a forest on Mars. And recently, there's a picture with um, some certain um, shading and shadows that made it look like you know there might have been trees on you know in one of the pictures on Mars. But luckily, we already have pictures of that region you know that we could show that had different lighting to show that it was just some dunes. So this well, that is- forest on Mars moves around though. <laughs> <laughs> you know, run, forest, run. Run, forest, run. <laughs> so, but this is an, a particularly important thing to be aware of um, because this can, this is another one of those things that can trick anybody because of the way that our minds work. I mean, because of the way that our eyes are built, we have a blind spot that most people don't realize. And, you know, the, a simple way to do this is, you know, put a dot on a piece of paper and then, you know, Look at it through the corner of your eye and bring it closer and closer to to your nose. And as you do that, the dot at some point will disappear. You close one eye and you use the other eye to, to, to do it. And then you move a little further and there's the dot again. So you can see that you have this blind spot. Yeah. Well, as a Boy Scout, I remember we did some um, leadership training thing one day. And one of the exercises they did was um, one of the adults drew, um, drew a curvy line. And put a dot there and ask everyone what that was. And, of course, John was like, well, that's what this looks like. It's like, all it is is a line and a dot. Right. <laughs> that's all we drew. You guys decided what it was yourself in your head. You know, But all it was was a line and a dot. That's how simple it was. You've made it more complicated. And this is the, the, how the Warcheck tests, you know, it's all, the, I mean, they, they work off of this pareidolia principle. Or would you call it a principle? They work off of pareidolia, this illusion. So, but most people aren't aware of this, and this is another one of those things that when you're not aware of it, it's it's so easy to you know to but your um, mind play tricks on you, right? And our minds do play tricks on us. I mean, our, 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 we have some defects in our brains, and one of them is the way that they're wired. And this um, is this takes advantage of that. My friend John, whenever he would spend the night at my house, had to have the radio on because I, I don't know what he heard. Although I've heard stuff down here in the basement myself, but um, he would hear little things, and he, you know, it bother him because he'd feel the house was haunted. So he had to have the radio on for him to sleep here. That's just silly. Only yeah. houses on the East Coast can be haunted. Houses out here aren't old enough. <laughs> oh. <laughs> well, they mention in the Wikipedia article on pareidolia, EVP, electronic voice phenomenon, which is where you hear variations in the static and you make words out of it. Right. Or when you're playing a record backwards, that kind of stuff. Right. Um, backmasking. And I was actually giving a lot of thought to this pareidolia question and... It, it seems to be that it's not just visual and auditory stimuli that we uh, that we tend to make into other things, but it's mental stimuli as well. 
Um, let's take up the question of, Brian, why you don't believe in astrology. Okay. What was it you said that you've got a, you've got a bunch of very, very general, general things – and what do people say when you when you tell them what their what their their astrological profile is like? They say, "Well, yeah, that's a lot like me." Right. Well, and here's the thing: is that well, that goes that you know that I I would say that's not pareidolia so much as that's you know that's just cold reading techniques, and maybe it is. I don't know. I don't know if that really fits with pareidolia. That's a good question. Well, I, I kind of think it does. You know, cold reading techniques are one thing where you're actually trying to get somebody. But if you're just telling somebody, well, this is what's in your astrological profile. And this person is saying, okay, well, well, yeah, that's that's like me. That's like <laughs> me. My wife used to do a lot of study on uh, numerology. And she stopped studying numerology for the same reason, which is that it's the items that you're, that you're pulling up about a person are so generalized that – the person basically makes the connection in there themselves. Any of these charts could be attributed to anybody. And the other problem with them is that two people born on the same day at the exact same time are not going to be the same person. But yet they will have the exact same chart. They could be born in the same hospital at the same time and be two different people. Same chart, two different people. Well, I was born in the same chart in the same hospital at the same time, and I am two different people, so I can agree. <laughs> and do both of you concur? Well, I do, but I disagree with myself. There you go. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I want to talk about cold reading too. I I don't know um, it, how if pareidolia quite fits with that, but certainly. Well, I, uh, it's your mind looking for patterns. You know, okay. you're hearing stuff, oh, right. you know, that sounds right. We are, you know, that sounds like yeah. me. Okay. You, know, you give minimal information and your mind connects, oh, yeah, that's right, you know. Well, that's, that, it so, is essentially what's happening, even with cold reading. And I, I had never thought of it that way, um, so I'll have to think about that. I, did you ever actually watch the Deuces um, show um, on Sci-Fi? Which show? John Edwards' big show. Oh, yeah. Oh, my God. Um, I, I caught that a few times, and that's what you see. You see him saying something so vague, and these people suddenly their mind, oh, that must be talking about me. And then once you know, he gets you, he starts fishing for a little yeah. bit more and a little bit more. I and sense then someone out there in the audience has had a loss. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that <laughs> was my Why case. else are they in the audience? <laughs> And it's that, you know, the people's minds obviously are looking, oh, you gave me that small bit of an information, that little bit. I'm going to piece it together with a bigger thing. Say, oh, this must be what you're talking about. Okay, because but, okay, but I think what we might be getting into is aphrodolia or aphrodolia. I'm not going to say it. Right. <laughs> uh, you know what? I'll, I'll hang We all it. know where you were going with that. No, no, no. I mean, it's 1970s. No. Apof- apophenia? Is that what you're trying to say? I think apophenia? so. Here, try this. Apophenia. 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 And which is which is more general, and pareidolia is kind of part of apophenia, but apophenia is kind of the same thing, um, the, the connection of random patterns and meaningless okay. data. So I think that pareidolia might be a little bit more specific, and what we're branching into is the more general term, which is the um, – Apophenia. 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 <laughs> I'm wondering – I was thinking also about the tendency to ascribe – Understandable human behaviors to pets. Okay. You know, my dog, my dog does this, my cat does that. And when in actuality, it's just, it's a, it's a motivation that you can't really understand because it comes from the mind of a different, a different type of creature. Right. Right. And these ascribing of human behaviors to animals is just not true, except in the case of birds, because... <laughs> Yeah, so the, this is apophenia. Apophenia is the experience of seeing patterns or connections in random or meaningless data, which is a little bit more general, and and I think that's what we're talking about here. Yeah, but the two seem to overlap. They do overlap. Um, I, well, like I say, I, I would say that this is the more general, and pareidolia is slightly more specific. I don't know. 
I yeah. I would ascribe the what I was talking about with the astrology to be pareidolia because the person is actually looking for <laughs> they're looking for themselves in what they're hearing. But it is the connection in me of of meaningless and random data. Well, the entire thing is the entire the entire science of astrology is. Uh, stop there. Do not call it a science. Okay. <laughs> the discipline of astrology. Okay, I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> the practice of astrology. There you go. Is apophemia, but as it specifically applies to somebody who is hearing their chart, I would still ascribe it to pareidolia. Okay. Because either that person is going to go looking for, yes, this is like me, or yes, I know somebody like that, or they're not. And they're going to say, no, you've got it 100% wrong, and I, that doesn't sound like me at all. Right. All right. So it's an interesting, it, you know, it's interesting whether whether you're talking about pareidolia or, or apophenia. Okay. Um, you know, either way, it's 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 an illusion. You're 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 attributing. Well, your eyes are playing tricks on you, and you're connect, and and you're making something out of the data that's there that really isn't. Well, it's not your eyes playing tricks on you. It's your brain playing tricks on you, interpreting right. the data that comes in. Right. The eyes are not going to get something wrong. They're just reading the data. The ears are just hearing the data. It's how the brain it's interprets what, it's, it. It's how the brain forms the patterns from what it gets. Right. All right. We had another story in here, but I think we're going to skip it, and we're going to call that a wrap. Good. All right. I think we actually had a good podcast. It was pretty good, yeah. I think so. Thank you for listening to the Amateur Skeptics Podcast. Contact information for Amateur Skeptics can be found at AmateurSkeptics.com. Music for this podcast was provided by OMF. Learn more about OMF at MySpace.com forward slash OMFHQ. The Amateur Skeptics Podcast is released under a Creative Commons No Derivative 3.0 license. We'd love to have you share our work with other people. Please don't change or edit the file.